My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, are you familiar with the French chef Jacques Touré? He is a, a world-renowned chocolatier. He is a world-renowned pastry chef. And he creates these delicate works of art out of sugar and dough. So if it, one of the talents you have up on your sleeve is, is you are an at-home chef or uh, 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 someone who likes making desserts, if you in your kitchen could take a couple pounds of chocolate and turn it into an intricately colored solid chocolate rabbit, or if you could pull the flour out of your drawer and create a cake that looks just like the Eiffel Tower, you might possibly begin to start to be able to compete with this French chef. Which is probably one of the reasons the Netflix series Nailed It became popular while it, it ran. Because in this television show, they took this chef's creations and he created a, a model for everyone else to see. And then they went and they tried to find bakers, amateur bakers, men and women who in their kitchen at home liked to take a cake and make it into something fancy or who liked to, to melt some chocolate and make their own chocolate at home. And, and these people would go on the show and compete. And within a certain amount of time, they had to, to take one of these cakes that was created by Jacques, and they had to mimic it. And they had to reduplicate it. And it doesn't really matter how faithfully these amateur bakers went about trying to do it, how faithful they were in measuring out the dough and, and making the cake. You can imagine what the result was. And if you're imagining a flaming train wreck, you're about right. You have all these amateurs that are trying to mimic what a professional, renowned chef is trying to do, and it just falls apart. As a result, no one was able to nail it. The people of Israel found themselves in a situation that was much more important than simply appearing on a television show to try and create a culinary masterpiece. They were immersed in the daily cycle of worship. And because they were immersed in that daily cycle of worship, they wanted to do it the best that they could. And, and, and that's what they tried to do. They would bring the burnt offerings for the morning and the evening sacrifices. They would bring the, the offerings that God commanded for all of the other times, the sin offerings and the guilt offerings and the fellowship offerings and the grain offerings and the drink offerings. And as they brought their offerings, they didn't hold back either. Some of the other prophets criticize Israel for giving God their seconds, but that's not what's happening in Isaiah. They are bringing the best. They are bringing the well-fed cattle. They are bringing the, 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 the first of their flocks. Because if they were going to worship the Lord, they were going to do it right. And, and not only did they bring the best in their offerings, they, they remembered the Sabbath. 
And they carried out their weekly worship, and they carried out the monthly and the annual festivals, and they made sure that they burned the right incense that God wanted them to burn as they, they brought their prayers up in the evening and the morning. They did everything that God commanded in the law. They did everything that as they looked and said, this is what pleases God, this is how we are to worship Him. Except as they did this, did you notice how God reacted? I, Isaiah describes what God's reaction is to all of their worship. He says, I've had more than enough. I have no pleasure. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. I cannot bear your assemblies. I hide my eyes from you. Your hands are full of blood. And, and you look at the offerings and the worship that Israel is doing, and you look at the way that God is talking about them, and there is a disconnect there, isn't there? There is something that doesn't seem right, because the worship looks just the way it is. The worship is being done just the way it's supposed to be, and yet God is not happy with them. And the reason that God is not happy with them is the people of Israel have forgotten. They have forgotten why they are doing the worship. They forgot why they are bringing the sacrifices. They forgot that their forefathers were wandering Arameans whom God called out of everyone else to be his people. They forgot that God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt and brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. They forgot that God had established them in the land of Canaan and gave them that land as an inheritance. They forgot the way that God had time and time and time again delivered them just as he said he would. He forgot that God had called them to be his own. And in his mercy poured out his forgiveness on them. And in his mercy told them that his Savior would come through them and their people. And forgetting all those things, they started to focus on their worship the same way that their pagan neighbors carried out their worship. They thought if they brought the right offerings, just as God prescribed, at the right time, just as God prescribed, in the right way, just as God prescribed, and if they burned the right mixture of incense, just as God prescribed, and did it and offered that incense at the times that God prescribed, as long as they went through the motions, then they would please God and God would be happy with them. And if they could please God with what they were doing, and if they could please God by going through the motions, then maybe God would be satisfied with them. And maybe they could coerce God into doing what they wanted him to do at the times that they wanted him to do it. And so Israel tried to mimic the worship that God had commanded, and, and they discovered that they were ending up with, with a cake that looked like a burning train wreck. Because Israel forgot the most important parts of their worship. They forgot that their worship was a response to the mercy that God had already poured out on them and he had been pouring out on them since the day of their forefathers. They simply went through the motions of worship and thought God is satisfied with that. 
And because they, they, they thought God was satisfied with that, their confidence and their trust shifted away from God and what he had done for them, and their confidence and trust began to rest on what they were doing for God. As long as we do the right thing, God will be happy with us. Except God isn't interested in just going through the motions. God wants the heart. And God wants the motivation of the hearts to be pure. The people thought they could keep the Sabbath just by bringing the offerings. God wanted them to keep the Sabbath by keeping it holy. And they weren't doing that. And God demonstrates that they weren't doing that as he lists the catalog of, of, of his evidence, the proof that they were not keeping his Sabbath holy. They were not listening to him. They were not taking and trusting in him and bringing that into their lives. He described how they were doing wrong, how they were abusing justice, how they weren't standing up for the oppressed, how they weren't looking out for the widows and the orphans, how they were trusting in their actions as they brought their offerings to be enough instead of placing their trust in God and his mercy. And as we gather today to worship, and to bring our praise to our God, Isaiah's condemnation of God's people, that, that can give us pause. Because today we gather to remember the Sabbath just as God commands. And we gather to keep that Sabbath holy just as God commands. And Luther describes that in this way. He says, we, we keep it holy by not despising preaching or the word, but regarding it as holy and gladly hearing and learning it. You see, worship is not simply a box that we are to check each week. It's not a box where you sit there and say, oh, I worshiped today. Now I'm good for the rest of the week. And our prayers are not a, a prayer where we check it and say, oh, I did my prayers today. Now I'm clear. I can, can go about and do whatever I want. Our worship is a testimony of the faith and the confidence we have in God's mercy, a testimony for how that, that faith and that confidence carry into our everyday lives. And yet, even though we know that our worship, it starts by fleeing to the Word and fleeing to what our God has done so that our eyes might delight once more in His mercy. It, it's very easy for us to start to slip into just going through the motions. It's very easy to view church as this thing that I have to do on Sunday morning. It's, it's very easy to sit there and, and rest your comfort on the fact that I said my prayers when I was supposed to say my prayers. And you know what happens when we try and turn our life into a mimic of what God has commanded? What happens when we rest our, our confidence in the fact that I'm saying my prayers at the time I'm supposed to say my prayers? What, what happens when we, we sit there and say, I've, I've, I've gone through worship and I don't remember anything that happened, but at least I was there? Well, then our, our worship also becomes like that, that cake that's trying to imitate what God has done, but has turned into a, a burning train wreck as well. But lift your eyes to what your God says to you. 
Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They are, though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. You see, we, we can't create anything ourselves that comes close to the perfection that our, our God demands. We can't rest our confidence in what we are doing for God. And so God steps in. And God does what we are unable to do. God willingly takes his son and nails his son to the cross. And then God willingly takes our sins and puts them on his son as his son hangs on that cross. And through his son, you become as white as snow. And as we worship, that is what our eyes are drawn to. The fact that God has taken us and he has made us white. The fact that he has removed our sins from us and he points us to his son. And God's action on our behalf changes the way that, that we look at worship then. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it, Jesus tells us. Isaiah said it a little differently to his people. Stop doing wrong learn to do good. You see, when we keep God's mercy as central in our lives, when we keep our eyes focused on Christ, that naturally flows into the way that we carry out our lives, into every aspect of our lives. You see, as we talk about our worship, we're not just talking about what happens in these walls for an hour on Sunday morning. As we talk about our worship, our worship flows into or out of these walls and into the hallways of our life on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday as well. Our worship continues throughout the week. And our worship continues as we faithfully serve as stewards of the mercy that he has given us. And Isaiah paints a picture of, of what that worship looks like. He says, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. And, and these are rather broad brush strokes that he uses. And, and sometimes we, we discover the opportunities to carry out these broad brush strokes in our own lives. Just last week, we had the encouragement from the Haven Project to to, to take an opportunity to help those who are orphans or help those who are in need because it's an opportunity to, to allow our worship to, to flow into our actions for one another. Or as, as we were reminded last week, continue to do good to all people, especially to the family of believers. But sometimes we also need to pause and we need to look at, at how these broad brush strokes that are described can become a rather intricate and detailed brush stroke within our lives. Because as we look at our lives, we don't find ourselves interacting with orphans every day. And we discover that there's times where where our opportunity to, to stop the injustices in the world are, are rather limited. And while we know widows, we, 
we may not have the opportunity every day to assist or to help those widows who are in need. But we do see our spouse, and we do see our co-workers, and we do see our children, and we do see our neighbors. And as we look and see them, we see opportunities where we can lift them up as well, where we can help them in their time of need. And, and it, it, looks, it looks different in each one of those cases. Maybe we look at our marriage and we see the, 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 the day where, where our spouse is just overwhelmed and they just need a moment. And it's an opportunity to take the rest of the family out and, and give, give the spouse, give your spouse an opportunity for peace and quiet to collect themselves. Maybe, maybe it's something as simple as taking the device that you have and setting it down. And then spending five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes with, with your focus solely on your spouse, with nothing else interrupting you, letting them know that, that now at this moment, they are the most important and they are the ones that matter. Sometimes it can be found in work where you look and you see your coworker and they're starting to get more and more and more overwhelmed. And even though you know you can't take anything off their plate, you can find a way to encourage them. Or you can sit by their side and listen to them as, as they vent. Or you can assist them and build them up as you encourage them in their task. And yet these aren't the only places that we take our, our worship and, and let it flow into our daily living. The Apostle Paul, as, as he wrote to us in Romans, reminded you that your worship flows into how you live as a, a part of the body of Christ. And he says to you, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. You see, in view of God's mercy, you bring your worship into the faithful use of the abilities that God has given you and the talents God has given you throughout the course of the week. In view of God's mercy, you joyfully bring your offerings to your God, rejoicing that he gives you the opportunity to share in this grace that he's given you. With your time, you take the time to pray for your brother or sister in Christ for whatever they may be going through in their lives. And in this way, you take your worship, the worship that you've, you've done here for an hour, and you take that worship into your daily lives. You take that mercy that God has shown you here, and you live in that mercy throughout your lives. And you do it not because you somehow think that, that your standing will look better in front of God as you do it. You do it because this is your worship. This is how you give thanks to God for the mercy he has poured out on you. Our God has given us something that is far greater than even the fanciest cake that looks like the Eiffel Tower. 
He has equipped us to live in his mercy, offering our lives as our worship to him, both in the sanctuary and outside this sanctuary. And he urges us to continue to remember his mercy as we faithfully live in that mercy each and every day. Amen.